Hello and welcome back to Commodity Conversations by the team at Mercado, the podcast where we keep you up to date with the latest trends, drivers and moves in livestock, grain and oilseed and fibre markets. My name's Olivia Agar. Thanks for listening into episode 232. We've got a fantastic episode lined up for you today on what is a favourite topic for many farmers, the weather. Now, back by popular demand, we have Eric Snodgrass, Principal Atmospheric Scientist at Nutrien, based in Champaign, Illinois. And for those that might not be familiar, Eric puts out a fortnightly weather forecast video for Australia, which we're big fans of, and I'll link to the latest ones in today's show notes. But back to today's episode, we'll be diving into the seasonal conditions around our cropping regions so far, discussing the impact of El Nino seasons, as well as what we can expect this time around and even beyond the current season. Before we jump into the episode, as always, here are the few key takeaways from markets this week. And the headline of a mad cow disease in the US stopped us in our tracks for a brief minute, but US agencies were very quick to identify the case as an atypical case, which if you remember back to the scare in Brazil earlier this year, isn't a risk of spreading, so there are no trade or market implications expected. Now, both cattle and sheep markets are continuing on their downward trajectory. A lot of poorer quality lambs are presenting, which is really dragging price around, and we know that supply is well and truly in the driver's seat, with combined East Coast sheep and lamb slaughter last week 23% above the five-year seasonal average and well above the normal range. So processing capacity is certainly stretched, And we're also seeing a big premium for heavy lambs over trade lambs at the moment. Young cattle prices are still on the downward run as well and have lost some support from rising beef export prices. So Australian 90CL beef imported by the US was rising in price from the start of the year as those domestic supplies in the US were tightening. But we've seen those prices really come off the boil in recent weeks with reports that end users are loaded on inventory and they just aren't chasing the product now. Without further ado, let's get into the episode with Robert Herman and Eric Snodgrass. It pays to plan ahead with Nutrient Ag Solutions Prepay Plus. Earn a 5% per annum reward on your prepaid amount to support next year's purchases. It's a great way to take advantage of a positive cash flow and minimise your tax. Have a chat with your local branch today and start paying on your terms. Product offered by Nutrient Ag Solutions Limited. Customers should obtain independent advice on the suitability of this product for their circumstances. Terms and conditions apply. For more information, contact your local Nutrient Ag Solutions branch. So, Eric, hi, and welcome back to Commodity Conversations. Yeah, thanks for having me back. So uh, it's a it's a very um, poignant time, if you like, talking about weather, whether you're in the north or the southern hemisphere. But uh, we want to specifically talk about what's uh, ahead for us down here in the south. But firstly, how have you seen the seasonal conditions so far in Australia's cropping regions? You know, we're making a pretty big transition right now. So we've come off of these years, uh, three of them in a row, where we've tended to have plenty of precipitation. There's still a few places that have had great precipitation, like in the north. We've had a little bit of trouble, uh, you know, some of the central growing areas uh, with with just not having enough precipitation. But then you get down south and there's some places I can find that are pretty wet. So, you know, it's as we talked about just before we started, there's just a lot of variation and there's a lot of worry. Most everybody thinking that if I keep talking about El Nino, that's just going to keep pushing the conversation toward greater and greater risk of being 
you know, uh, drier as we go forward. So I get it. There's a lot of concern right now. Well, you know, is the big um, the big bogey for us down here, of course. Um, we we do get different um, different grades of reports, I guess, and uh, some are talking it up more than others. Um, what's in your view and looking at your models, Eric? What how likely are we um, to have a weak, moderate, or even a severe El Nino? Or for that matter, is there any chance of not having one, or is that out of the question now? When you think about this El Nino, we have a lot of evidence right now that it is building and it's building quickly. So the ocean temperature pattern, of course, is our first indicator. There's a whole lot of warm water beneath the surface that is that is coming up, and we expect that to continue that for the next probably I'd say six to 12 months, it's gonna to continue to do that. We've watched the Southern Oscillation Index just plummet recently. We've seen some typhoon activity in the Western Pacific and all of these are kind of telltale signs that El Nino is, is there. Um, but you know, you look at what some of the forecasting agencies are saying, we have the Climate Prediction Center of the United States says better than 90% chance of one developing between now and all the way through December, January, February. Uh, then you have BOM, which is at times been very aggressive. And, and you talk about severity of an El Nino, you know, they were predicting this one to rival like the 82, 83, the 97, 98, and even the 15, 16. And I'll be honest with you, when, when we look around the world at people that we think have the best handle on what an El Nino can do, all the rest of the meter, we go to BOM. We're like, what are they saying? We're going to look at it and try to take what their analysis is and do something with it. So um, yeah, but I think to make a point about this, because certainly you're going to hear different stories about it, um, is that there is no such thing as a perfect flavor to an El Nino. They all have different flavors. And if you just look back, one of the great things that BOM does is they give you this 120 plus year record of annual precipitation. When you go find all the El Nino years, they don't all look the same. But we just worry about increased drought risk, especially east. And that just tends to happen when there's an El Nino because you lose the strong you know, trade wind flow that you want. You, you, you lose the, the little easterly bursts that hit the, you know, the east coast and give you some moisture. And uh, so we get worried about it at this point. And yeah, it's top of mind for me. That's why I can just keep talking about it for hours if you want. <laughs> so um, I'm interested that uh, the, the El Nino forecast talk uh, you know, in, by degrees, if you like, out to December, January, February. What happens after that in an El Nino uh, year, Eric? Yeah, that's a good question. So we've got really good historical records going back to about 1950 on the behavior of El Ninos. And generally speaking, they will reach a peak in December, January, February, and then they typically fall back off. You know, thinking historically, it's pretty rare that you find a strong El Nino followed immediately by a strong El Nino. They tend to spike up and they come back down and they can bounce around with weak, very weak El Nino conditions for maybe a year or two after that. But that's entirely different from a La Nina. La Ninas, we often call them double dippers. They go down and they stay cold. And sometimes like this last year, they stayed cold for three years. So it's entirely different behavior. And that's generally because to get an El Nino, you have to work against the normal trade wind pattern, which is out of the East. They have, to, they have to go the other direction or, or at least stop. And to keep the atmosphere doing that for a long period of time, is just hard because of the direction the earth spins and the way that our planet's oriented. It's just very difficult to get those winds to, for a while, have a different trajectory. I noticed in your last um, webinar publication, uh, came out last week, I think, Eric, you were talking a fair bit about frost and temperature, um, yeah. especially, and that's especially important at this time of the year, of course. Uh, can you just talk a little bit about how an El Nino affects that? 
Yeah, so one of the things we're watching this El Nino team up with is something called the Southern Annular Mode, right? So this is a pretty common phrase. Where I am, we call it the Antarctic Oscillation. And, you know, it's just a different, different name for the same thing. What's driving that right now is that it's been mostly negative for a while, but lately it's jumped up very positive, which means it's changing a lot. And the net effect of that is you're getting a lot of change in the behavior of your westerly jet stream. And so wherever that westerly jet stream sits, the farther to the north it goes, the better the chances are more storm systems to come through, bring in those cold fronts and then drop those temperatures. And then so this time of year, we primarily just watch the high country down in the southeast. I mean, that's really where I'll focus on. But I've seen some of your temperatures get down into that one to three degree C range. And uh, so you're sitting here looking at these chilly nights. And based off of satellite observations and then data from BOM, we've kind of watched this fall or this autumn, excuse me, uh, stay pretty chilly overall in a lot of places. There's been times when it's warmed up, but we're kind of flirting more with these cooler temperatures than we would be uh, otherwise. Yeah. Um, the El Nino um, has a different effect on the Northern Hemisphere, different effect on the US and, and Canada. And, and the reason that we're interested in that is because we, a lot of our product is exported into markets that are competing with uh, those crops. And we've seen in and and those uh, cattle and uh, herds, we've seen recently that the big sell-off in cattle in the US on the back of a dry period um, has impacted on global meat markets. Yeah. If we're, am I right in, in thinking that that season is changing now in the Northern Hemisphere? And if that is the case, then the reason we're interested, Eric, is that it may mean that their herd starts to go back into a rebuild. Yeah, there's certainly a lot of effort and discussion about the rebuild because we had drought in some of our major cattle areas. So think about Montana, the whole of our plains is what we call it, getting into the southern Canadian prairie. For the last three years, the drought has just gotten deeper and deeper and deeper. In fact, some of the best grazing ground from Texas and Oklahoma, Kansas, Colorado, it spent much of the last 12 months at our deepest stage of drought. And it uh, destroyed the winter wheat crop. In addition to that, it's done a lot of damage to some of the other crops we grow there, like sorghum, corn, soybeans, and things like this. And what's really just, in my opinion, almost tragic about it is the flip we've now seen here in the last month has just delivered a bunch of rain to those people. So too late in the year to help the winter wheat crop. It will help with pasture land later, but what it did was it came through and actually flooded some people out because that soil turned into concrete and all that rain comes down and it just floods yeah. every which direction. Mm. And so, yeah, uh, it's it's been a, a complete, almost like a flip of a switch and it's been very problematic for uh, for the plains of the United States. Now we've, you mentioned that we've had this uh, La Nina pattern and, uh, you know, and that, that was a three year pattern down here, which caused a, um, you know, a lot of precipitation. And now we're talking about the possibility of an El Nino. Do we have sort of neutral periods where it's neither one nor the other, Eric, and, and just <laughs> life goes on just normally? We do, but the atmosphere loves, well, the atmosphere is what we call a nonlinear chaotic system. Right. So what happens is if it goes along and you perturb it one way, it really just corrects back to normal. It comes on, yeah. just does this, and then it yeah. finally finds its way back to neutral. So we just poked the beast and made this three-year, <laughs> you know, La Nina, which it's kind of neat. What happens is if my hand is Australia here, okay, you just get a circulation that comes up and rises, and it just kind of curls in the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean and just does this. Whenever you have an El Nino, you take that circulation with Australia underneath it, and you move it way out into the East Pacific. And when it gets over there, you, you're left with sinking motion. 
So we've now just completely reversed what we call the Walker cell. It was discovered by this guy named Sir Gilbert Walker way back in the 1800s. Uh, he's a British guy living in India. Uh, anyway, uh, it's all shifted. And so now here we are, we've gone from one extreme and we feel like we're just going to go to the next. And it may be 24, 25, 26 until we get something that's what we might call normal. But I'll tell you something about normal in weather. There's no such thing, right? Whenever you think about averages, they're just the average of very high variability. And so uh, it's funny, I got asked by a grower the other day, says, what, when, is our, when was our perfect year in the Corn Belt here in the States? I'm like, you, you haven't had one. They, they don't <laughs> exist. There's The best year you're ever going to have is if you're going to grow that crop in a greenhouse where you control everything. And, and we don't do that with our big crops, right? Well, I can hear the excitement in your voice talking about weather, Eric. And uh, it's a bit like we think about markets. And and part of the reason for that is that you've just explained is it's uh, it's not predictable. Uh, it's it's changeable. It's variable. And it's uh, and I think you used the word chaotic, which is uh, which is a pretty good word. Eric, um, what about in this next um, couple of months for, for the Australian wheat belt? Because it, it is getting pretty critical for some areas. There some some areas have stopped planting, um, some that planted dry are now wondering, you know, whether the crop's going to get us started at all. Yeah. So I just recently looked at all of the long-range updates and uh, overall and I, I guess I have to agree with what Baum is saying as well, you have more risk on the dry side. And it's simply because these longer range models, you know, what they're going to use to help understand uh, any chances of precipitation would be those big climate drivers. So the Southern annular mode is a big part of that. You just have strong westerlies going across the continent. So you got strong westerlies, you have a problem. You're not drawing moisture from someplace. It's just blowing across the central yep. part of Australia, which is desert, right? So then uh, you say, well, what about maybe the MJO can come and help? Well, it's got to sit over Indonesia to push moisture in from the north. And right now it's out in the middle of the Western Atlantic. You say, well, what about the Indian Ocean? Could it give us a hand? Well, it just flipped to what we call the positive phase of the Indian Ocean Dipole, which is trying to take the circulation away. So bomb stitches us all together. The European model stitches us all together. We do it here in the States. And we just keep seeing drier risk going forward. Now, that being said, we can still get fronts that come through and kick up enough moisture to, to bring a little bit of precip but there's more risk on the downside than the upside right now in terms of getting the moisture that we might need just before we settle into this, uh, you know, this this colder stretch of months. Yeah, and um, I get that, and it's and it's well explained, Eric. So uh, and thank you very much for coming on to Commodity Conversations. I know that um, farmers would rather have a forecast and have something to work with rather than uh, look out and and not have any idea what what might be ahead because that helps with their planning and. And we know they're pretty good at making the most of whatever precipitation they get. Eric, can you just tell us a little bit about the work you do? Um, you know, and you know these reports are available via Nutrient and Mercado, so um, anyone can get hold of your information. Just tell us a little bit about the work you do with the uh, in the northern uh, northern hemisphere and mainly in the U.S. and Canada, because um, we hear so much about the importance of that those those weather patterns there in terms of their crop production and, and the crop progress. Just tell us a little bit about the work you do uh, over there. Yeah, you know, you brought up a good point. I don't think there's a lot of people that like me right now. <laughs> and this is what I mean. I, I, I talk to folks in Australia and I say, hey, you have El Nino, it could be a risk dry. <laughs> and, and people are like, oh dear. And then here in the United States, 
we are waiting for the positive benefits of El Nino, which typically bring us yep. big summer thunderstorm complexes, but it's been bone dry uh, in the central part of the U.S., except for where the winter wheat grows and it's been flooding. So I have a lot. In fact, just before you got on, I was getting text messages from four different people saying, are you nervous? I'm like, I'm not nervous yet. If it was <laughs> July, we'd be nervous. But you know, my, my day-to-day is um, I spend about half my day uh, putting together forecasts, mostly for North America, but some for South America. And then, of course, every two weeks uh, for Australia. And that, that Australian video is just a long range. Here's the bigger driver things. Yep. But in the States, I do a lot of just regular daily forecasting. Um, and uh, what it is is just try to keep folks ahead of, of what's coming and, and try to keep track of what's already happened. That's a very important part of weather is that people forget that the analysis is just as important as the forecasting. Because yeah. if yeah. you don't know where you are, then you're not going to know where you're going. So and the other part of my day is I, I write a lot of software. So I, I build maps, I build uh, forecasting systems. And uh, just sit here and day to day try to improve my uh, long range forecast skill. My biggest challenge, by the way, just to let you know, is the same challenge everybody else have. I I I have to be very careful not to confirm my own biases or conflate ideas, because I'll tell you something. When you have a lot of growers telling you that I need rain, I need I rain. Need rain. <laughs> well, you, you start looking for rain, right? And so I'm like, okay, okay, I'll find it for you. Yeah. If it's not there, you you don't want to tell them. But if you can just stay objective and and uh, you know really try to um, provide the best context of what's going on. I think farmers, like you said, do appreciate it, even though sometimes the news is bad, they need the news. Yeah. And look, we look forward to the fortnightly reports that come out. You, um, They're great. And uh, for those people who haven't had a look at them, uh, it's a great webinar. You use a lot of charts to to explain and, uh, and, and talk about what you're seeing. Uh, it's great to have you on board, Eric, and we really appreciate it. Thank you very much for the time. I know it's uh, getting a bit lighter in... Uh, in Canada now, uh, in the Northern Hemisphere, but um, we we really appreciate your time. We love the way you uh, talk about weather because uh, a bit of excitement and uh, and a bit of uh, clear discussion is always good for a podcast. So <laughs> great work, Eric. I appreciate that. Thank you.